So the passage of scripture we're studying this evening is the first letter of John and verses 1 to 4. In Jesus' day, the philosophers had a favorite topic for debate. The topic was, what is truth? What is truth? Even Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, asked Jesus that very question. And debate continues until this day. So many people are searching desperately for the truth, for a deeper meaning to life, a deeper reality. But searching and finding are two very different things. Many things give the promise of reality. Many religions, many philosophies claim to be the truth. But in practice, they offer nothing. People grasp at these things as a child grasps at candy floss as a fair. Expect to bite into something real, then they find they have a mouthful of nothing. In his first letter, John tells us about the only place where absolute truth is to be found, the only true reality, and it's in the life of Jesus Christ. At Christmas, Christians celebrate the coming into this world of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, this Jesus who was born at Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary was and is the eternal Son of God. And he'd existed before time itself. But John's Gospel tells us that at a specific time in history, this Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He who has eternal life took on human life. He came into this world as a baby. The first four verses of the first letter of John in the Bible form an introduction. They concern the life of Christ. They speak vividly about God the Son taking on human flesh. And they tell us four important things about this life. They tell us four important things about the life of Christ. It's a life that is eternal. It's a life that is revealed. It's a life that is experienced. And it's a life that must be shared. It's a life that is eternal. It's a life that is revealed. It's a life that is experienced. And it's a life that must be shared. So John begins by making clear that Christ's life is a life that's eternal. Christ's life is a life that's eternal. One of the most fundamental needs of our lives is the need for security. People try to find their security in all sorts of different things. Some look to money for a firm foundation. Some look to bricks and mortar, their homes. Some find their security in the love and support of friends and family. But none of these can provide an absolutely certain security. Our money can easily be lost through bad investments or robbery. Our home can burn down or be repossessed. And even the best of friends and family can let us down or disappoint us. So where can we find that security that will never fail us? Where can we find a firm foundation for our lives? Where can we find a certainty that will never let us down? According to John, this can be found only in Jesus Christ. Christ alone is wholly reliable. And that's because, as John says, his life is eternal. 
The opening words of the Bible are, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But God the Father wasn't alone in the beginning. For John tells us that Christ's life was, verse 1, from the beginning, verse 2, the eternal life, verse 3, with the Father. And the Apostle Paul says of Christ that all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Politically correct philosophers tell us everything is relative. They claim there is no such thing as absolute truth. They say moral standards are merely a matter of personal opinion. What's right for you may not necessarily be right for me. These people paint a picture of the world as a place filled with uncertainties. But John's letter here bursts into that world, bringing eternal certainties. John declares something that's true, whether or not people choose to believe it. If there was a life that has always existed, then surely that life is the one thing upon which we can completely depend. It's the one thing that is certain in an uncertain world. And that life is the life of Jesus Christ, who the Bible tells us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the eternal Son of God who existed with God the Father from before the foundation of the world. Yet he didn't remain remote from mankind. He appeared. John tells us that he came into the area of human experience. He who knew no sin came into this dark world of sin. In verse 2 of John's first letter we read, The life was made manifest, in other words it was revealed, and we have seen it and testify to it. What was true from eternity was actually revealed in history. Christ's life is a life that was revealed. Christ's life is a life that was revealed. Some people like to belong to secret societies like the Masons. They love the idea of being in the know. They enjoy being one of a small number who know the secrets that exclude other people. Now, to join a Masonic lodge, you have to take part in initiation ceremonies. You have to learn the so-called hidden knowledge. And you're never supposed to let on who another Mason is. Secrecy is a very important part of the appeal of the Masons. Now, in John's day, secret was, secrecy was also an important part of people who were known as the Gnostics, the Gnostic movement. This, too, was a collection of people who considered that they alone held the ultimate truth, the hidden knowledge. And because of that hidden mystery, they were believed they were superior to everybody else. But you notice from the Bible that this isn't the case with God's glorious revelation of himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' life wasn't a life that was hidden. Speaking of Jesus' crucifixion, the Apostle Paul says it wasn't done in a corner. It has been proclaimed on the world stage for everyone to see. In his first letter, John uses a special term to describe Jesus, doesn't he? He describes him in verse 1 as the word of life. 
the word of life. John uses the term word of life to describe Jesus as God's revelation of himself. And when you think about it, it's a very apt description. Just as words are a means of communication between human beings, so Jesus himself is the living means of communication between God and us. He shows us the mind and the heart of God. Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There were many false teachers in John's day who told lies about Christ. And there are many false teachers today who tell lies about Christ. You will notice that they agree with Bible teaching in many respects. But they always diminish, without fail, they always diminish the person of Christ. They're prepared to accept that he was a great man. They're prepared to accept that he is a, a gifted teacher. But what they won't accept is that he's God the Son. The Apostle John will have none of this. In the fifth chapter of his first letter, he says this, We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The tragedy is, if you're wrong about Christ, you're wrong about God. Again, John says in the second chapter of his letter, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This is a deeply serious matter. Most people will say that they believe there is a God. Some will even say they believe in the God of the Bible. But most refuse to accept the claims of Jesus Christ, who said he was God made flesh, who said he alone is the saviour of the world. Most people refuse those claims. But I say to you this, if anyone believes they're going to heaven merely because they believe there's a God, they're tragically deceived. As it says in the letter of James, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And Jesus himself said, of course, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you don't want to die in your sins, you must repent of them. And you must come to God trusting that Christ died for your sins. If you don't, you go to a lost eternity. And that's because you've been following the wrong route to find forgiveness. This is the solemn truth at the very heart of the gospel of joy, and there can be no compromise about it. Of course, many faiths claim to bring eternal life, but pay heed to Jesus' warning in Matthew's gospel. If the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. So we've seen that Christ's life is a life that is eternal. It's a life that is revealed. John also tells us that it's a life that must be experienced. Christ's life is a life that's experienced. Christ's life is a life that's experienced. 
Every time I read this, I'm struck by it. See how bold John is here in describing his experience of Jesus. Listen again to verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now read it again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is describing here what it means to be a Christian. He says it isn't enough to know about that word of life, which was from the beginning. To be a Christian, you actually have to know that word of life personally. John's own experience wasn't second-hand. It wasn't something he inherited from someone or something he read in a book. John had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus face to face. He and the other apostles heard Jesus speak. They watched him as he lived with them. In fact, they studied him carefully. They even touched his body. They knew Jesus was real. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a vision. He was God in human bodily form. Now, perhaps hearing these words in the 21st century, you might well say to me, well, of course, John had an advantage, didn't he? He lived when Jesus lived on earth. He knew Jesus personally. It was so easy for him to do it. I was born 20 centuries too late. But to think like this is to make a profound mistake. It wasn't the apostles' physical nearness to Jesus that made them what they were. It was the apostles' spiritual nearness to Christ which saved them. Remember, Judas Iscariot also lived at the same close quarters with Christ as the other apostles did. And yet he never truly knew Jesus as the others did. The difference was that the others had committed their lives to Jesus as their saviour, and Lord, and by trusting to Jesus, they had experienced eternal life. To use Jesus' own term for it, they had been born again. And that's the experience that John, in his first letter, wants everyone to know. Even if they think they might be Christians, his readers, he wants them to be sure that they're Christians. A well-known Bible commentator tells the story of a college student. This student had returned to campus after going home for a family funeral. Almost at once, his grades began to go down. His personal tutor thought the death of his grandmother had affected the boy. Time would heal the wound. But the boy's work continued to get worse. Finally, he confessed to what the real problem was. While he was at home, he'd happened to look into his grandmother's old Bible. And there he discovered in the family record that he was an adopted son. I don't know who I belong to, he told his tutor. I don't know where I came from. If you think you're a Christian here this evening, it's vitally important that you have the assurance that God has adopted you into his family. In his first letter, John gives us some tests to work out whether or not we're God's children. 
he urges us to ask ourselves some questions. First, he asks whether we seek to live a holy life. In chapter 2 of his letter, John tells us that if you know that he, that's Christ, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If we're Christians, we're going to be wanting to lead holy lives. Second, John asks us whether we truly love other Christians. Because in chapter 4 he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. If we're truly Christians, we will love brothers and sisters in Christ. And third, John asks us whether we love this present world system more than we love God. In the second chapter of his letter, he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. So these are the questions we all need to ask ourselves, including this bloke here. Are you seeking to live a holy life? Do you genuinely love other Christians? Do you love God more than anything in this world? If the answers are yes, then these are strong indications that you are indeed a Christian. But it is absolutely vital that we answer these questions honestly, because our eternal de destination depends on the answers that we give. <clears throat> Tragically, there are a great many people who believe that they're Christians when in fact they aren't. They think that because they go to church, they lead a good, clean life, they do good, they're saved. Let me tell you the tale of the counterfeit £10 note. You do your weekly shop at the supermarket. At the checkout, you pay by debit card. You ask for cash back to save you going to the ATM. But unknown to you, you receive a counterfeit £10 note in your cash back. You use your £10 note to buy clothes from the Oxfam shop. The Oxfam people put the £10 note towards helping the poor and needy. But when the £10 note is taken to the bank with the other income, there is a problem. The cashier says, I'm sorry, I can't take this note, it's a counterfeit. Now that note did a lot of good while it was in circulation. But when it arrived at the bank, it was exposed for what it really was. So it is with a counterfeit Christian. He may do many good things. He may lead a respectable life. He may attend church regularly. Yet when he comes face to face with Christ at the final judgment, he may yet be rejected. Jesus said on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we, each one of us must ask ourselves honestly, am I a true child of God or am I a counterfeit Christian? Have I truly been born again? If we have any doubts at all, we need to ask the Lord to make our standing before him clear to us. 
So John has told us that Christ's life is a life that is eternal, it's a life that is revealed, it's a life that is experienced. Finally, he tells us Christ's life is a life that must be shared. Christ's life is a life that must be shared. A pastor once had a phone call from an angry woman. I have received a piece of religious literature from your church, she shouted down the phone. I resent your using the post to upset people. What was so upsetting about a piece of mail from the church, the pastor asked. You've no right to change my religion, this woman stormed. You have your religion, I have mine. Changing your religion or anybody else's religion isn't our purpose, said the pastor. But we have experienced a wonderful new life through faith in Christ. And what we want to do is to tell everyone else about it, how wonderful it is. In verse 3, John writes, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You get the real sense here, don't you, of how excited John was by his wonderful experience of Jesus. He was absolutely thrilled by the glorious message of eternal life that Christ had given to him. So he just had to share the good news. And he gives us here two reasons why he had to share it. His first reason was to bring his readers into fellowship. Fellowship is being made right with God in Christ, and it's becoming part of the church. John wants to bring his readers into a fellowship with God the Father and to fellowship with him and with the church. And what is the basis for this fellowship? Jesus Christ himself, of course. The word fellowship means to have in common. We're all born unbelieving sinners who have nothing at all in common with a holy God. But in his mercy and love, God sent Jesus Christ into the world. He sent him to have something in common with you and me. Christ took on a human body and became a human being like us. And he went to the cross and took on that body, the sins of the world. Through that, he paid the price of our sins. So through his sacrifice, the way is open now for God to forgive us. When we trust in Christ and all that he has done for us, we are born again into a right relationship with God. We enter true fellowship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus. John shared this message because he wanted to bring his readers into fellowship. And the second reason why John had to share his message is found in verse 4. It's that our joy may be full. That our joy may be full. The pleasures that we look for in this world are great while they last, but the best of them are only temporary. Speaking to God, King David says this in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David's words, of course, point ultimately to the joy we'll experience when we're with God in heaven. 
But the gospel doesn't just offer us pie in the sky when you die, as so many allege. God's, all, God's word also promises us joy now in this life. Karl Marx wrote, the first requisite for people's happiness is the abolition of religion. But Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that, your joy, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Of course, Jesus hasn't promised that as Christians we'll be free from sadness, we'll be protected from all trouble, we will never suffer. Jesus hasn't promised that. But what he has said is, no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. A real Christian life gives real lasting joy. Many years ago, there was a traveling entertainer. He advertised himself as the human fly. He climbed tall skyscrapers without the aid of safety rope, of rope or safety nets. Great crowds watched him with a mixture of excitement and fear. During one performance, he came to a point on a building where he didn't seem to know what to do next. He paused and then he reached out and grasped a piece of mortar to lift himself up. But he didn't go up. He fell to the pavement with a scream and was killed. When the police opened his hand, it didn't contain a piece of mortar. It was grasping a collection of thick, dirty cobwebs. Don't be like the human fly, placing all your trust in something which will fail you. The passage we've been looking at points us to the only source of absolute and eternal safety. And that's the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember what this passage says about what it means to be a Christian. And remember the tests which help us to be certain that we're Christians. The Apostle John, who wrote the letter we've been looking at, wanted all his readers to know Christ and to be sure that they know Christ. That's why he says at the very end of his letter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Amen. Amen.